It is great to be here with you this morning. You all are frequently in our prayers, and uh, it's very exciting to see what all the Lord is doing in your midst right here. Um, If you would, turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew's Gospel, chapter 3. We're going to start at the towards the end of chapter 3, and then we're going to read the first part of chapter 4. And then, um, just because this is what missionaries are supposed to do, we're also going to read a little bit out of Matthew 28. Matthew's Gospel, and I would ask you to stand for the reading of God's Word, please. Matthew chapter 3, beginning with verse 13. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my Son, my Beloved, with whom I am well pleased. Now, remember that title that the Father announced, My Son, my Beloved. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, remember that's what the Father had just declared about him from heaven, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him. To the holy city, and set him on the pinnacle of the temple, and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and also on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, Again it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all of the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all of these I will give you if you fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him. And behold, angels came and were ministering to him. And now turn over to Matthew 28. This is just extra. In Peru, we call this yapa. No charge. Matthew 28, beginning with verse 18. Now remember what the devil had just promised to give Jesus if he would worship him. But now on the other side of the cross and on the other side of the resurrection, notice what Jesus claims about himself. Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. 
Go therefore and make disciples of all of the nations, baptizing them into the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Amen. Please be seated. Let's pray. Holy Father, great and awesome is your name, and great and amazing are your promises also in Christ Jesus. Thank you for all the things that you promised him, and thank you for all the things that you promised us in him. Grant us, O Lord, your presence even now, your spirit in our hearts and our minds as we read and study your word. Grant, O Lord, that we would behold wonderful things from your law, from your word. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. What would it take to make you and me, our marriages, our families, our children, our churches, our communities, what would it take to make us resilient, strong, bold, courageous, What would it take to make us like that for completing the mission that Jesus has given us? In the last two or three years, uh, especially since COVID, but it really started well before then, it's, it's, it's like the Lord has shined an ultraviolet light on our marriages and our families and our churches and our communities. And that ultraviolet light has revealed to us a whole, things, a whole bunch of things about us that we probably would have preferred not to have seen. It has revealed the cracks in the foundation. It's revealed how fragile we are, how fragile our marriages are, how fragile our families are, how fragile our churches are, how fragile our communities are. And so the question is, what would it take, now that we can see so clearly and so evidently how fragile we really are and how fragile our marriages and families and churches are, what would it take to make us strong, courageous, bold, and resilient to face down whatever the difficulties are that come, to face down whatever the giants, remember Joshua leading the people of God into the promised land, and God told them to be strong and very courageous. Didn't matter how big the giants were, didn't matter if the cities were walled up to heaven, he says, be strong and courageous, for I am with you. And in fact, we have an echo of that in Matthew 28, where Jesus says, I am with you. So what would it take to make us bold, courageous, strong, and resilient in the face of of all of the difficulties that come our way. Well, uh, I suggest to you that we find the answer to that precisely here in this passage about our Lord's baptism. Because we could ask the question, what was it that made Jesus himself so strong and courageous and bold and resilient for the mission that his Father had given him? Think about all the things that Jesus had to face 
in his ministry. Immediately after his baptism, he goes out into the desert and he's tempted of the devil for 40 days and 40 nights. The devil comes to attack and the devil is hard at work there to, to chip away at his confidence in, in the Father's love, to chip away, because notice how he says, if you are God's son. Yeah, he said you're his son, but let's see. But that's just the beginning. Throughout the rest of Jesus' ministry, we find over and over again Jesus facing one obstacle and one difficulty and one struggle after another. And yet, like Luke tells us in chapter 9, and he gives us an echo of a passage from Isaiah, combining the two together, basically it says that Jesus set his face like a flint to go to Jerusalem. Jesus set his face like a flint, like a, a granite rock, to go to Jerusalem to die on the cross for our sins, no matter what the obstacles, no matter what the difficulties, no, no matter what the trials, no matter what the circumstances. So what was it that enabled Jesus to have that resilience, to be able to face down the devil, to be able to face down the scribes and Pharisees and Sadducees, the Sanhedrin and the Roman authorities? What was it that gave him that resilience? If we can figure out what that was for him, I suggest to you that, that we'll find that that's actually the key to our own resilience and our own strength for the mission that he's given us. But we need to kind of back up a little bit and let me set the context here. Matthew's gospel, well, this particular passage of his, of his baptism is actually one of the most prominent stories in the whole, the, the whole New Testament and the whole story, the storyline of the Gospels. It occurs in all four Gospels. There's a reference to it in Acts as well, and probably even allusions to it elsewhere in the Bible. This particular event had a very formative influence on Jesus' own mind and his own consciousness uh, of his calling, of his vocation, and, and of, of, of all that the Lord had, all that his father had called him to do. And so let's take a look at this and, and try to analyze it a bit in its context and, and see if we can find here what this secret was to our, lo our Lord's own resilience for mission. Here in, in this passage, well, in, in all of Matthew's gospel, I mean, this is a case in, in in the whole New Testament, but it's especially true in Matthew's gospel. Matthew's gospel is an amazing work of literary art or artistry. It's amazing the way Matthew weaves together not just quotations like we have that we read just a moment ago, quotations from the Old Testament. He, he weaves those together, but also there's allusions and, and echoes of all kinds of passages and events and and uh, activities in the Old Testament. I often tell my students in Peru that uh, to learn how to read the Bible well and read the Bible correctly, we not, not only need good eyes, we need a good ear. In other words, you got to put your ear down to the text and listen for the echoes, echoes of other passages. And one of the echoes that we can hear quite prominently in this passage and, and the declaration that the Father makes about Jesus is an echo from Psalm 2. 
Psalm 2 is one of the great messianic psalms where the father makes this declaration about his son. And he says, you are my son. Almost exactly what we have here. You are my son. This day have I begotten you. Ask of me, and this is the really important part for what's going to come next. Ask of me and I will give you the nations as your inheritance. The ends of the earth as your possession. And so, first of all, if we, if we put our ear down to the text and listen carefully, we can hear this echo of Psalm 2, which is about Jesus' call to be the Messianic King, the Son of God, not, not primarily in the sense of His eternal Sonship, He is the eternal Son, He is the second person of the Trinity, but Sonship in the sense of the Davidic King, the Messianic King. And so in Psalm 2, we have that great promise. The Father says, you are my son. You are the messianic king. And because you're my son, I'm giving you all of the kingdoms of the earth, all the nations of the earth as your inheritance. They're all yours. I'm giving you title to all of them. And so that's one of the key aspects of this passage. And, and Satan is, in fact, going to allude precisely to that when we get into chapter 4. There's a second thing that we need to see here, though. It's not just that Jesus' baptism is repeating this promise from Psalm 2 about Jesus being the coming king. It's not just that. We also see something else here, and, and this something else actually has to come before his full enthronement with, with full power and authority as the messianic king. And that is his priesthood. Here in, in, uh, in, in, in Jesus' baptism, this marks the beginning of his ministry. Now, do you remember how old Jesus was when he was baptized and when he began his ministry? Matthew doesn't tell us here, but Luke tells us that he was 30 years of age. He was 30 years old. Why might it be significant that Jesus began his ministry at 30? 30 was the age at which a priest in the Old Testament is ordained to the ministry. But beyond that, in the ordination service of the priest in the Old Testament, he is anointed with oil, and here we see Jesus being anointed with the Holy Spirit, and of course the, the oil in the Old Testament was a symbol of the the anointing with the Holy Spirit. Beyond that, however, there are other things that suggest the, the, the same. For example, in all of the Old Testament, we see lots of different kinds of baptisms. There are all these different kinds of ritual washings. Every time you contract some kind of ritual impurity, you've got to go baptize yourself again before you can go back to church, before you can go back to the temple. And, and so... In all of those different baptisms in the Old Testament, virtually every single one of them are self-baptisms. We wash ourselves before we go back to the assembly. But there's one baptism in particular. There's one very prominent baptism in the Old Testament that's not someone baptizing himself. Rather, it is another person baptizing you. And that is, in fact... Uh, in the ordination ceremony of the priest 
in the Old Testament. So the priest is not only anointed with oil, but he is baptized by the high priest, by a, another person. And so here when we see Jesus being baptized by John from a priestly family, he's baptized by John, the Spirit descends upon him and anoints him. And then also there's the, the mention here that as soon as he's baptized, the heavens were opened to him. In Mark's version of this, he uses the, a, a very strange word that talks about the heavens being ripped open. And it's the same word used at the end of the gospel about the veil of the temple being ripped from top to bottom, symbolizing how now through the ministry, through the priesthood and the intercession of Jesus, we all have full entrance into heaven. So in other words, what's going on in Jesus' baptism, it's, it's not just this proclamation of his kingship, of his coming kingship, but it's also his ordination to the priesthood, his ordination to all of these things that he will be doing culminating in his death on the cross. And so when we, when we see this, we have, to, we have to recognize those two things. And in fact, some, some scholars talk about a, a certain kind of certain pattern in the Bible called the enthronement pattern. You can see this in the enthronement and coronation of Saul as king in Israel, also with David, and, and in some other cases as well. In the Bible, the one who is to be the king, he doesn't immediately assume the throne as king. First, he is required to humble himself and take sort of a priestly role, a sacrificial role. We see this uh, in, in Philippians chapter 2 where the apostle Paul says that Jesus did not consider equality with God as something to be grasped and held on to and used for his own advantage. Rather, he emptied himself. He humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross, Wherefore, or with the result that God then exalted him. And so humbling ourselves and sacrificial service, sacrificing oneself, comes before exaltation. That's a pattern throughout the whole Bible. Here, even though Jesus' kingship is proclaimed, Jesus doesn't immediately assume his kingship. First, he's got to serve as the sacrificial priest. He's got to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. And then after that, he will be exalted. And of course, that's exactly what Satan is getting at in the temptation. The, the, the proclamation was heard where the father says, You are my son, this echo from Psalm 2. And everybody would have known that the son is the one who's supposed to inherit the nations of the earth. The son is the one who's supposed to be the king over everything. And so first Satan comes to Jesus and he's trying to chip away at Jesus' confidence in his vocation, his calling, his confidence in his relationship with the Father. And so Satan says to him, well, if you're God's son, we, we all heard the voice from heaven, but if you're really God's son, then command these stones to be made bread. And of course Jesus responds by quoting scripture to him and says, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of the Lord. So then Satan takes him and, and takes him to a pinnacle of the temple and says, well, if you're God's son, if you're really God's son, 
then cast yourself off of here because it's written that, that uh, he will send his angels. They'll, his, he'll give his angels charge over you lest you should even dash your foot against a stone. And the Lord responds to him again with scripture and, and, and turns away that temptation. And then there's a third temptation. And this is the one where, in a sense, Satan gives up on the possibility or the likelihood of, of cracking Jesus' confidence in the Father. And he just goes straight to the main point here. And, and he says, listen, we know from Psalm 2 that the Father promised to give his Son all of the nations as his inheritance, all of the kingdoms of the earth. But look at, look at the way he's proposing to give you these nations. He's saying to you, I'm your father, I love you, I'm pleased with you, and therefore if you'll go die, here's what I'll give you. And Satan says, what kind of a father is that? What kind of a father could, could really proclaim to love his son, and yet he sends him to a cross? He sends him to die an excruciating death. What kind of a father is that? Come with me. Come with me. I will give you all of the kingdoms of the earth, and I'll give them to you the easy way. Now, a lot of people say, well, Satan couldn't have offered those things because he didn't have the kingdoms of the earth. But in fact, Scripture tells us over and over again, refers to Satan as the prince of this world or the prince of the power of the air. Paul says in, in 2 Corinthians 4 that, that Satan is the, the God with a little g, the God of this age. And so in a very real sense, Satan did have possession at that moment of the kingdoms of the earth. Adam was created to have dominion over the earth. Satan came and stole his crown. And ever since Satan stole Adam's crown, Satan is the one who who is the prince of this world. But Jesus has come as the new Adam to take the crown back. And Psalm 2 promised that Jesus would be given the crown over all the nations. But here we find Satan says, listen, I'll give it to you the easy way. You don't have to go to the cross. But what do we find at the very end of Matthew's gospel? We have an allusion to all of this conversation an allusion also to this event. Matthew chapter 28 is on the other side of the resurrection, the cross and the resurrection. It's, it's on the other side of that where Jesus now, because he was humble unto death, because he did sacrifice himself as, as both, both the sacrifice and the sacrificer, because he did that, God then grants to him, gives him title to all the nations of the earth. And that's why Jesus says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Notice, he's not talking about his authority as God. A lot of folks get really confused on, on that proclamation in Matthew 28. Jesus is not saying, I have all authority in heaven and on earth because I'm the second person of the Trinity. Now that's true, but that's not what he's talking about here. What he's talking about here is an authority that he has just now received on the basis of his resurrection. Because he's been raised from the dead, because he was faithful unto death and has now been raised from the dead, therefore God the Father is giving him all of this authority, is giving him title to all the nations of the earth. And that's why he then calls us 
to participate with him in laying claim to all of these nations. Jesus says, look, I have title. I hold the title in my hand. Now I want you to work with me, to go forth with me, to claim, to disciple all of these nations. And so the baptism that's referred to there, every Christian is baptized into the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Notice both in Jesus' baptism you have a Trinitarian uh, uh, picture with the Father speaking from heaven, the Son standing in the water, and the Spirit descending over him in the form of a dove. Well, now in Christian baptism, in our baptism, we're baptized into the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And essentially what happens is that our baptism... What that symbolizes for us is our insertion into, our engrafting into Christ's baptism, Jesus' baptism. In other words, whatever Jesus' baptism symbolized, as far as his, his calling, his vocation, his identity, our baptism symbolizes for us. In other words, just as Jesus' baptism is his ordination as priest, our baptism is our ordination to the priesthood. You didn't know that, did you? But you have heard of this doctrine called the priesthood of all believers, right? Each one of us is a priest before God, but we're a priest in Christ, in Jesus. Our baptism includes us into his baptism so that everything that the Father says about Jesus becomes true about us. And that's why, talking about how can we become resilient, or how did, how did Jesus, how, did he, how, how could he be so resilient in the face of all of the struggles and trials and difficulties? Jesus carried out all of his ministry with those words echoing in his ears, you are my son, my beloved, I love you. And I am well pleased with you. But not just that. It's, it's not just his identity in the sense that he's the son. He's the one whom the father loves. And he's the one in whom the father is well pleased. But also included in that, and this is really crucial, included in that is the idea of, of his vocation. Jesus' baptism inserts him into this big, huge biblical story. Think about a, an epic or a saga, a big story, a huge story about how a hero goes out into battle and he goes and he wins the victory and, and restores the kingdom. Jesus' Jesus's baptism inserts him into that story, the story of Israel, and it says he is the hero of this story. So Jesus gains this confidence, this courage, this boldness because he hears the Father saying to him, you are my son, you are my beloved, I am well pleased with you. But he's also, he also gains this courage and boldness and resilience because he, uh, he knows that this is the basis for his vocation. He is plugged into this overall biblical story where the hero of the story saves the whole world, rescues the world, restores the world, renews and transforms the world. And that's where you and I come in. Our baptism inserts us into Jesus' baptism 
Our, our calling in Christ inserts us into Jesus' calling in Christ. His mission becomes our mission. And so how can we have resilience and courage and boldness for the, the, the calling that God gives us, for the mission that God gives us? Only as we understand our identity in Christ what I want to suggest to you, too, is, and I think this is crucially important, and I think we consistently get this wrong in, in a lot of Presbyterian churches, contrary to our own standards, actually. We're so, we're so keen to, to not link our identity in Christ with, with works righteousness that we leave off the aspect of vocation. We're not saying that Jesus is the Son because of what He will do. He is the Son, and His identity is the one who has this vocation, the one through whom the Father will work to restore the nations. And it's the same way for us. We think about our vocation. Maybe your vocation is to be a carpenter or a plumber or an accountant or a teacher or whatever it might be. As Christians, we don't have many different vocations. Sometimes we talk that way. We say, well, the same person can be a carpenter and a father and a husband and a brother and an elder in the church, etc., and have all of those vocations. But really, all of those are one. All of our different, all the different aspects of our vocation are one in Jesus, and all of them are focused on this big story of where Jesus is taking the world. And we gain our resilience and our focus and our courage and our boldness as we come to see all of these different aspects of our life as a participation in Jesus' mission and what he's doing in the world. In other words, we can't compartmentalize our lives and say, well, these things have to do with my calling as a Christian or my service as a Christian, but all of these things, those are just, that's just what I do to put bread on the table. No. All of the aspects of our calling in Christ are focused on fulfilling this mission. And you and I and our children, our marriages, our churches will not be strong, will not be resilient, will not be courageous and bold until we understand clearly who we are in Christ, what our vocation is in Christ, how our particular vocations relate to Jesus' overall vocation of restoring and renewing and transforming the world. Now, I think my time is running out, but let me just, um, let me just try to cap this off uh, with, a, with this application. In order to be resilient, in order to grow in this resilience, we have to understand our calling. And we have to understand that that calling is our calling in Christ. We have to understand our identity in Christ. But there are lots of ways that, lots of ways that, or lots of aspects of that. For Jesus, remember that I mentioned that it's about Jesus being inserted into this overall biblical story of what God is doing in the world. Well, the same, the same is true for us. All of the different things that insert us into that story, all of the different things that that shape, that, that use that story to shape our mind and our sense of who we are and where we're going. Those are the things that will make us strong and resilient. 
We live in a world today that, as I mentioned earlier, is extremely fragile. We have a suicide rate that is off the charts in our day, right here in the United States. We have an opioid epidemic unlike anything we've ever seen before. Uh, the evangelical churches are facing, and I think we're sleeping on this, but evangelical churches are facing demographic collapse in our day. We are losing our children in, in huge numbers. The d divorce rate in evangelical churches is higher than it's ever been before, and it's exactly the same as it is out in the world. What is it that can make us resilient in the midst of this? I was, in a, I was looking into a program that we hope to use in Peru sometime, uh, a, a program of, um, working especially with young men uh, who are struggling with addictions. And I actually went through this program with a little group of, of young men. And one of the things that really struck me uh, in all the weeks that I did that with, with these men is every single one of these men, without fail, the, the program has a, places a big emphasis on gathering together, being transparent with each other, confessing our sins, and asking each other to, to pray, pray for us. One of the things that these young men confessed over and over again, of course they came and they confessed, well, uh, you know, I, I started drinking again, or I was using drugs again, or I was back on pornography again. Or they, they would confess all of those things. But every time they would confess those things, what it would ultimately boil down to, what they would always come back around to is, I just don't know who I am. I don't know what God wants of me. I don't know what my purpose in life is. I just feel useless and purposeless. That's why we have the opioid epidemic. That's why we have a pornography epidemic. That's why we have a, the, the suicide epidemic that we have. All of those things are because we have, we have raised a whole generation of people who don't know who they are. They don't know what the meaning of life is and what the purpose of the world is. And until we grasp that, until these young men in this program that I was talking about, until they understand their purpose in Christ, until they understand what Jesus is doing in the world and how their particular calling relates to that and plugs them into that, they are going to continue to flounder around in hopelessness. And the same thing is true not just of those young men. The same thing is true of our marriages. The same thing is true of our own families. The same thing is true of our churches. We've got to be doing the kinds of things that, that mold and shape our minds and our hearts with this big biblical story of where God is taking the world. One just quick application of this. I promise to close with this. Um, one, of the, one of the things that we've all just... It's, it's hit us in the face and it's been completely bewildering is how quickly our whole culture, the whole Western culture has given up on the idea, the, the historic idea of marriage and all of the different issues, the gender ideology stuff, all of the things that are surrounding that. I don't want to talk at all about the political stuff of that, but one of the things that all of that reveals is that Satan has been very successful at, de at destroying, virtually destroying, 
the one key thing that God has put in this world that, that shows us the purpose of, of the world, the meaning of life more than anything else, and that's marriage. In the Garden of Eden, God created the male and female, and when we stop and think about it, we say, well, God could have arranged for the propagation of our species in all kinds of different ways. It could be we chop off part of our finger and plant it in the garden and a new human being grows. It could have been that way. But God decided to make us male and female and for the propagation of the human race to be that way. Why did he choose to do it that way? Because marriage is a picture of God's own purpose and intention to unite himself with his bride, his new creation. And, and so all of history goes from the Garden of Eden to the marriage supper of the Lamb. So what's the key to the meaning of the history of the universe? It's marriage. It's, marriage is all about God's intentions. It's about God, what God plans to do to renew, transform, and restore this whole universe in Christ. And it's leading all to a marriage. But if you can destroy marriage, you can destroy then the source of, of meaning for humanity. And it's not an accident that we're in the midst of all of this confusion over gender ideology and marriage and all of that. All of that is exactly related to this issue here. It's related to our lack of resilience as marriage, as individuals, as marriages, with our kids, with our churches, etc. And the answer is understanding Jesus' mission and understanding that our baptism plugs us into that mission and is a call to align our lives, our hearts, our minds, our lives with this big overall story that's going from the Garden of Eden to the marriage supper of the Lamb. When we understand that story and get ourselves plugged into that story, then we will have the resilience, the strength to face down the giants, the wall, city walled up to heaven, etc., a lot more I'd like to say. I better close. Let's pray. Holy Father, how thankful we are that your son was able to face down the evil one, to face down all of his minions, to face down all kinds of giants, and to set his face like a flint to go to the cross. And thank you, O Lord, that you have highly exalted him and now given him a name that is above every other name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and every tongue confess. Oh Lord, help us to grasp a clearer sense of our own calling, our own identity, our own mission in Christ. Help us to understand more fully our own baptism and how that connects us to Jesus' baptism. Lord, hear us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.